This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This series contains references to death and trauma associated with the Canterbury earthquakes and may be upsetting to some listeners. Well, just before the earthquake, I was actually sitting at my desk in um, my little wee unit, which was on the first floor of the PGC building. That's Monique McLennan, and PGC stands for Pine Gould Corporation. The five-storey concrete and glass office building stands at 233 Cambridge Terrace, near the Band Rotunda in the centre of Christchurch. It was built in 1963, so it's square and kind of blocky-looking, and as it turns out, it's weak, especially the eastern wall. As a structural engineer will later tell a royal commission in 2012, the PGC was not a happy building. It's Tuesday, February the 22nd, 2011. And basically I was tap-tapping away and I remember specifically looking down at my computer at 12.15 and all the people from my unit had just come back from lunch and I was just like, oh, you're back from lunch early. Monique's thinking about her own lunch hour. She usually goes at about one o'clock, sometimes for a run, but it's raining. And instead today I was just like, oh, I'll just go have lunch. So I walked to the cafeteria, which is probably two metres away, and put my opened it up, put my lunch in the microwave, pressed the button. And then I was like, ooh, the microwave's making a funny noise. <laughs> um, and literally at the exact time that I'd pressed the button, the rumbling started. All I remember seeing was this wall coming at me and I threw myself at this table that everyone else was, you know, (laughs) clamouring for. And when the rumbling stops, it takes a moment to realise she's trapped. I was under the table and my legs were out flat and the table had broken on top of my back in a way that it had come down through my top and was stabbing into my back and... There was just a weight on the table. That's probably one of the one things that I always will remember is the weight that was on the table because I couldn't, I couldn't move. I was just so stuck. I was in my office uh, at the time the earthquake hit. David Lang works right next door and his office, a corner one, is probably about the closest to the PGC building geographically. He reckons it's about 30 metres away. I was standing at my desk and it just seemed to build and get more violent and thought, oh, this is, this is obviously serious. And towards the end of the shaking, I um, turned around and looked out of my window and as I did that, I saw the Pine Gore building just collapse. 
I shouted out to the young solicitor. I said, it's gone. And he said, what? I said, the PGC building. I'm Katie Gossett, and this is Fragments, first-hand accounts of the February 2011 earthquake. 185 people lose their lives when the 6.3 magnitude quake rocks Christchurch at 12.51pm on February the 22nd. But the quake also sets off thousands of individual tales of challenge, hardship or loss. It affects everyone. These interviews recorded in the weeks and months after the earthquake are fragments, personal testimonies that make up the biggest story of a shattered city. And I looked down Manchester Street and I just had this mental image of what it must have been like in the Blitz in the Second World War. It was a war zone. I think every 20 minutes or so I just screamed my lungs out. I was just in so much pain. I'm sitting there thinking, oh, God, where do I start here? And I was really scared that our floor was going to give out and um, that would be the end. I started the regret process of, I wish I'd done this with my life. I wish I'd told my family that I loved them. Episode 2, The PGC Building. Time. I was just getting up out of my desk to actually walk out to the um, to the engine house, and that's when the earthquake struck. Steve Kennedy, Assistant Area Commander for Fire and Emergency, he's at the Central Fire Station on Kilmore Street. Looking out my window, there's a row, a row of appliances that are there. Well, they all just kind of like started dancing from side to side. Steve does a check of everyone who's at the station, and they get the fire engines out onto the road and they can see right away that things are a lot worse than the previous 7.1 quake in September 2010. Looking down towards the bridge where the, the church is at was collapsed, so there's just a big pool of dust coming down the street from that way, and then looking down the other end of Kilmore Street, there's a big pool of dust coming from the from the shops down on the corner of Barbados Street that had collapsed as well. So, yeah, we, we knew it was quite a major event. There's a guy came running through the crowd, and he said, the PGC building has collapsed. And so I decided that I'd take my appliance round to that. I was at home, I have a five-year-old called Flum and a two-year-old called Max, and Max had a cold. So my lady who helps me, family friend, came round and she was looking after the kids for me that day. This is Megan Martin, a mother of two and part-time PE teacher at Marion College. She's supposed to be at a union meeting. I thought about flagging it. I didn't want to go. I didn't think anyone would notice, but I thought, okay, I better go. So I sucked it up, dragged myself out of the house, um, jumped in my van, headed to where I was supposed to go, Town Hall. Stopped at the lights in Kilmore Street, but when the lights went green, a part appeared on the left and I pulled into it. Then it hit. And I remember holding on to the steering wheel because we have a van and just being rocked side to side and I, the thoughts going in my head was I've been hit by a car but I'm through the intersection. This is just really, really bizarre. I held onto the steering wheel, looked out to my right, didn't know that it was the Pine Gold building but 
saw this building collapse. In that instant, two thoughts go through her mind. One was just drive off, get back home, but I knew my kids were okay. I also had in the back of my head, we didn't have any damage to our house when the last one was, so I never even thought anything would be wrong. And I thought, no, I've got to help. You realised kind of how dark it was and you didn't really know what had happened. Inside the building, Monique McLennan is wedged under a table in the cafeteria, her head pressed in close to her knees. It was just quite surreal at the time because you're sitting there like this and all you can hear is other people making noises around you, but like all it was was us five people who we could hear and it was just one man who was making noises. He's, he's alive. Um, but they weren't very nice noises at the time and um, basically one of the girls was screaming out to him and then she was screaming out to make sure that everyone was okay and I was like, I'm okay, but I have to move. I have to move before there's an aftershock. And then my legs went quite numb and quite pins and needly and then I was just like, okay, I'm going to have to move. Got to do something. If I don't move, I'm going to die. And she's not the only one. So I was actually doing my will at the time, would you believe? Moments before the quake, Amanda Fuller is about to leave her desk at Perpetual Trust on the first floor of the PGC building. The earthquake started off very, very softly for a start, and then it got very, very violent. And at that stage, I sort of thought, well, this is not very good. So I've actually got off my seat and I crouched down, ready to get under my desk. Uh, I put my left hand on my chair. Next thing I know, I heard the building crashing around me. My first thoughts was, oh no, I'm not going to survive this. I heard myself scream, and I think basically what happened was that I think my chair fell over because I put my right hand on my a bookcase that was right beside my desk, and um, yeah, everything, the floors above me, fell on top of my hand. She loses her glasses, a shoe, hears herself scream again. And it was sort of like an out-of-body experience, like it didn't actually sound like me, but yeah, I knew that I had screamed. There was two girls in front of me that I couldn't see, but I could hear them. And that's when I realised that my hand was trapped and I couldn't get it out. And I said to them, do you think you could come over and help try and get my hand out? And they said, oh, Amanda, we can't see you and there's a big concrete wall. And then there's Summer Oliver, who's also in the Perpetual Trust office. She's just stood up from her desk to go meet a client. All I remember is just dropping to the ground and trying to get under my desk. And I think the floors above me fell with me. To prove how quick it was, my leg was still hanging out from the desk and um, a six-ton beam had dropped on my lower back. Outside, David Lang has already arrived from his office next door. He and his colleagues are among the first on the scene. It was Richard, me, and a passerby, a young Russian guy wearing, and I just remember this for some reason, wearing sandals. And we were the first there, which and we thought, I was just holding my hand thinking, where do you start? And where we actually started was that there was a guy in one of the ground floor offices who couldn't get his door open to get out into the foyer. He would have been in there when it collapsed, but he wouldn't have actually seen the the calamity of it. 
So I grabbed a piece of concrete and just smashed one of the windows of his office and he got out and then there was an eerie sort of silence because it was a, a dark, overcast, oppressive sort of day. And um, for a while, probably about 10 or 15 seconds, I thought, well, what are we going to do? They start to hear cries coming from within the building. This Russian guy was just amazing. I don't know who he was or if he's been recognised, but he was an absolute hero. He just clambered up like a monkey and got up into the first floor and helped one woman onto the makeshift ladder that we'd made to get up, and so we got her down. Well, the morning was raining, and I woke up early, and um, I was meant to be in White Cliffs on top of a roof, two-storey roof. So I had to replan the day. Peter Riley, he's a building contractor. So he stays at home and gets a bit of paperwork done, and then he goes to return a concreting trowel that he's borrowed from his neighbour. And I was in his backyard, and it hit. And he was retired, and he didn't handle it really well. So I grabbed him and so we wouldn't fall over. And I looked towards the city, and I knew something bad had happened. Peter tries to contact his daughter and then his friend Tony Tamakehu, who runs a company supplying rigging and lifting equipment. Got hold of Tony and said, what's the plan? He said, stay by your phone. Tim will get hold of me. We'll see what happens. Tim is Tim Smith from Smith Crane and Construction. His gear and crews will play a big role in the rescue operation. So the second one hit and Tony got hold of me and said, yep. Get ready, I'll be around in 20 minutes. And in the meantime, Tim Smith had got hold of Tony and said, get into Pine Gorginis, there's people dying everywhere and it's a mess. So we pulled up, jumped in the ute, made our way in. The silence. The, the... It wasn't, it's just the deafening silence. And you literally are just sitting there thinking, are we the only ones who survived? Monique McLennan, trapped in the cafeteria. But we could hear, or I could hear one person who was just off of where we were. But that was the only person we could hear. Like, it's quite, it's, it's just really, you know, hard to think about, like, just the deafening silence, like... And then there's the pain, which is getting worse. So I pretty much waited until my leg was completely numb, and I just grabbed it and went, okay. Took in a deep breath and yanked it as hard as I could. I actually thought I was going to have to break it, if I'm completely honest, to get it so that it was out of the way, but that's how much pain I was in. And I, it was kind of like I just went into complete survival mode of whatever I had to do to stay alive, I was going to do it. Shuffled into this chair... And this chair is like the one thing I literally owe my whole life on. Because while she's also under a table, there's something pressing on it, something heavy. And I was like, okay, well, I can either stay under the table or I can move further in. And that's when I started putting my legs in between the drawers. And I was like, that's when I started doing the trade-offs. I can lose my legs, but I can't lose the rest of my body. I had a big steel beam that had come um, falling down as well, and it was on my shoulder, and it was pinning my shoulder as well. Amanda Fuller, who's had part of the building fall onto her hand. It's so true when they say that when you go through sort of an experience like that and you get that pumping adrenaline through your body, how you can lift things or bend things, because I actually managed to bend that. 
But the thing about it was that it kept flying back and whacking me on the shoulder. Summer Oliver is also beginning to realise that she's been pinned to the spot. I couldn't see anything. It was pitch black and I was trying to feel around. And then I just started yelling to see who else was around. That's when I realised that something heavy was on my back. She starts screaming to one of the girls she knows in the building. Come and get it off my back. I didn't realise she was stuck. I didn't realise all of us were stuck. They start to hear people outside the building. One of those who's arrived is Megan Martin. It was um, just like a war scene, basically, and people just standing outside the building and just either they were shocked, standing frozen in time, or they were crying. And there was another lady, and somehow we connected. They decide to collect the names of everyone who's got out of the building safely. Being a teacher, I had my teacher planner. We just thought, okay, well, what can we do? And we just thought, let's work out who's in and who's out. Back at the central fire station, Steve Kennedy has got his crew together. He tells them all to call or text their families before they start, so then they're able to just get on with the job. But he can't make contact with his own family, and he can't wait either. Moments later, they pull up at the PGC building. It took a wee while to, to sink in, just the magnitude that this building had just pancaked down on itself. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, God, where do I start here? Meanwhile, fire crews start scouting the scene, and other crews are already there, and people are milling about everywhere. A lot of people, whether they're passers-by or occupants out of the building, had started kind of trying to make makeshift ways of, of getting people out. And then um, a woman actually appeared on the roof. We'd set up a wooden plank to, to get access to the first floor. David Lang, still helping at the scene, he estimates it's been about 15 minutes since the quake. And he was having to carry her down, but there was no way he could get any purchase on this wooden plank. And, and so I was underneath supporting him, and then a, a young guy who worked for us was supporting me, and we just gradually slid down this plank with this woman who was in severe pain with a um, fractured collarbone, so we got her out. Across the region, news of what's happened is starting to spread and more contractors will offer their help. In Ashburton, Bruce Harrington's been building units at the Rosebank Rest Home and Hospital. And the phone started ringing pretty red hot. And um, they said, oh, she's a beast in town. And I said, oh, is it? how bad, how bad? Tim Smith, I was talking to him. I said, how is it? Do I need a hand? You know, the cranes, whatever. And he said, oh, you come in, we're in PGG and CTV. As activity starts to build up around the pancaked PGC building, inside it's still quiet, too quiet. Me and the girls, we sort of all had to yell really loud to each other. Summer Oliver, who's trapped near her workstation. And I was the only one that was actually injured and trapped. They hear voices outside the building and start yelling for help. One of the men outside yelled out, what level are you on? And I thought, what? Of course I'm on level one. Can't you see I'm on level one? Or... So I didn't realise how much the building had pancaked. Everyone inside the building can hear the rescuers, but because of where they're trapped, the people outside can only hear summer. I'd be the messenger person, which was really hard, especially being the only person in a lot of pain. 
every 20 minutes or so I just screamed my lungs out. I was just in so much pain. Outside, more and more people have gathered wanting to help, but someone needs to take charge. And so, slowly, a rescue operation takes shape. Steve Kennedy is part of it, alongside the first police officer on the scene. So we had a bit of a chat about it, and we said, how are we going to run this? And he said, well, I don't know, what do you think? I said, well, look, let's just, let's just run it together. Steve divides the building up into sectors and puts someone in charge of each. He sets up a triage area for anyone who's been wounded. He still can't get hold of his wife and children. And he's also struggling to contact the fire communication centre to get some assistance. I spoke to our comm centre like once or twice in the whole 10 hours. And like that, normally in an incident like that, yeah, the, the comms back and forth would be just continuous. But there's so much happening around town and, and like really didn't have a clue. And, the, uh, as we start working on the incident, you know, we kind of look over and notice a pool of smoke, and that was obviously from the CTB building, and then there's choppers flying over with the monsoon buckets, and you think, oh, God, how much damage has there been? And gradually more reinforcements arrive. Tim Smith is already on the scene with his crews. So we had a couple of cranes there, a 130-tonner and a 50-tonner. Um, pretty willing helpers, so I bloody start dishing out these few instructions. Um, and lots of people, you know, if there's a big concrete block wall um, and a whole lot of trees, so I basically said, hey, so we could get the cranes in close enough to to uh, try and lift things. Went up the top where the big roof sloped down on the side and there was an Australian guy there trapped who was still pretty coherent, talking to his wife on the phone. He was he was trapped under a big beam, not looking very good. So we went up and seen that and sort of that sort of brought to light the magnitude of it. Um, he was pretty squashed, so um, basically got the all the people knocked the big concrete block fence down and got a chainsaw and cut all the trees down and moved it out so we could move one of the big cranes and nice and close to where we could where we could lift. And a couple of guys that you talked to, Tony and Harry, and then they rang up and said, what can we do? I says, well, you might as well get down here and buddy gives a hand. Those guys are soon on the scene. And I looked down Manchester Street and I just had this mental image of what it must have been like in the Blitz in the Second World War. It was a war zone. Peter Riley. When he and Tony Tamakehu make it into town, they head straight for Cambridge Terrace. There was a ladder up on the Columbus Street side of the building, and we stood there for about five minutes, expecting someone who, to tell us what to do. And Tony and I just looked at each other and put our hard hats on and climbed up the ladder. And the first sight we we saw was basically we had to get from here to that wall a short distance but the rubble was up to your waist so you had to walk through it and we'd heard this whisper or this someone told me there'd been a double amputation just prior to us getting there at the rear of the building and the first sight we got was there was a guy caught under his his left shoulder a major beam had come down there was a medic there and the guy was on a drip and Tony immediately had a plan what to do to get him out. Then their friend Bruce Harrington, or Harry, arrives from Ashburton. They're soon all working with compressed air jackhammers. It's about four o'clock. Started boring these big holes. Everyone sort of had small gear, whereas Tim had the big gear and sort of started blowing big holes in the top. And we sort of just kept drilling down and then once we got down and sneaking through, busting through beams and stuff, Obviously, you'd hear voices. And we couldn't do anything until the engineer gave us a go to get a jackhammer and cut a scallop out of this beam to free his shoulder. Peter Riley. 
I was just looking into the guy's face and I wasn't speaking, but I was just reassuring him. Somehow energetically or whatever, and we couldn't get the go-ahead to do what we needed to do. Then we finally got it and we started working at it. The body language of the medic, I misread it. It told me that in my mind, everything's going to be right, we're going to get him out. And it didn't. He basically had one more shot of morphine and he looked at me and then he was gone. I got it wrong. I, mis I misinterpreted everything. What if, you know, if I'd known, I could have spoken to him or got his name or, or that last. Then it struck me what was going on, and the fire chief just said, Get me a can of Dazzle. Dazzle is paint in an aerosol that's used for marking things on construction sites. And he wrote a code above on the beam where he was. I said, what was that for? He said, oh, that's the code to notify the recovery team that comes in behind us. I said, what about the body? He said, no, we're here to save living people. And the switch went on my head then. I was just, okay, this is the real game. Then two more bodies, two more people were trapped in under, and within a five-minute period, they both died. So it was three people had died in front of me in a short period of time. And I think it was one of the Hawkins boys who was working in the corner of the building, which is on the first floor on the Oxford Terrace Riverside, parallel to Colombo Street. And he kept yelling out, I can hear someone in here, there's someone here, there's someone here. And he just broke through and it was the first woman to come out. And it was a young woman, Emma, who was getting married on the Saturday. Girls in front, one of her, her fiancé, she was due to get married on the Saturday. Um, he was basically very quickly to the scene. Amanda Fuller, whose hand is still pinned down. She was able to text him and let him know sort of where we were. So we had that sort of outside contact. But we're saying that there were people on the scene very, very quickly. Like you could hear people being rescued and people clapping as people were rescued. So that was really quite good to, good to hear. By then, the professionals had arrived. David Lang from the building next door. And so I sort of hovered around a bit and um, thought, well, I'll, I'll, I don't know there's much more I can do. And then I got on my scooter, which had fallen over in the earthquake, and went home. And, um, and then reflected on what had happened and how it was, you know, uh, the memories of this will be with me to my grave. And it, it defines people. And then I thought, you know, could I have done more? Because you know, there were a lot of people in that building. But I rationalised that, that I was ill-equipped. I was still wearing a suit and tie. Um, I, I, I guess we were tested, and I hope we were not found wanting. A lot of contractors turned up, obviously wanting to help. Steve Kennedy. It's a tricky call for the incident controllers. They're trying to balance the need for public safety against the practical skills and the gear that many of these builders can offer. In the end, they allow people to help and try to direct them to where they're most needed. So if they came up to me and said they were you know, a construction worker or a builder or a volunteer firefighter or whatever, and they had some reasonably, well, you know, 
boots and a, a hard hat and some earmuffs. Look, I'd, I'd let them go on site. And then the big aftershock happened. The chair that I was under buckled under the pressure of the weight on top of it. Monique McLennan, who dove under a table in the work cafeteria when the earthquake struck. And I ended up being under half a seat. <laughs> and my head was up like this because I had plastic jabbing in it and I was up against a fridge. And that's where I was pinned down for the rest of the time that I was stuck in the building. There's aftershocks happening, as you know. Amanda Fuller. And I was really scared that our floor was going to give out and um, that would be the end. During the whole time that I was stuck until I was rescued, I had to kind of keep my blood pumping through my body because of the crush through my lower back of this beam. Summer Oliver is starting to lose feeling in her legs. And then I felt it starting to leave my arms and my body, so I started squeezing my hands like this, and then that wasn't enough, so I'd squeeze them like this and move my head at the same time just to keep the blood flowing through my body. Finally, a fireman makes his way towards summer. He's knocking things out of the way. He's only just got enough room to crawl. So this man got towards me and then he said to me that he was going to try and pull me out. And I said, no, you can't pull me out. I'm really stuck. There's something really heavy on my back. And he said, no, 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 don't worry. I'm really strong. So um, he said, one, two, three, and started really trying to pull me and I just screamed, it was so painful. So he looked behind me and then basically went, oh crap. One by one the firemen come in to look at the beam across Summer's back. And the first guy had apparently said to this person that I knew that was outside, um, no we can't get her out come on, sort of as to say, let's move on and help somebody else. So um, this guy said, no, man, you can't say that. You can't not help somebody. Like, what's happened? What's in there? And, yeah, that's when the main fireman that helped me until the end was really involved in getting jacks put under this beam on either side of me and a number of them didn't work and broke and then they'd have to go and call for um, bigger ones to come and that's when I was thinking, oh no, I don't want to wait any longer because there are more aftershocks happening and every time there's an aftershock, sometimes you just think, just finish me off. The aftershocks have also got Steve Kennedy worried with so many volunteers now in the building. We had our people and contractors and, and public like crawling through floor levels that were now about, you know, five, six hundred mil high. That used to be two point seven metres and these big aftershocks rumbling through. So like these all these people, like the firefighters, the contractors, the public, well, we took so much personal risk that day. But Hey, we operate on this safe person concept and we'll kind of take a reasonable risk to save a saveable life. Well, to us, they're all saveable. 
Peter Riley and Tony Tamakehu are right in the thick of it. We broke through to the floor. We dropped down. Tony and I dropped down, and it was just absolute mayhem. Air conditioning ducts, ceiling tiles. We could hardly move. And then they have to do it again, jackhammer another breach hole down to the next level. But we had buckets on ropes, so as we're breaking the concrete up, it was getting hoisted up. The men are on 20-minute rotations. Finally, Peter, Tony and Harry, Bruce Harrington, break through to the second floor. Darkness, dust and rubble. And as it broke, as it came down, we ran a ladder down and came straight off the ladder and I looked straight ahead of me and there was a concrete beam on an angle and there was a cavity and the first thing I saw was two black shoes and I just naturally thought yep that's the first person we're going to get out alive and Tony shook his legs and he said to me oh mate he's not looking too good and I just naturally thought he's he's injured we'll get the medic down and it'll be fine then we heard his voice. Oh, that's such and such. I've checked his pulse, he's, he's dead. And <laughs> I looked at Tony, he looked at me, and I and there was a lady there. And I thought, how are we gonna keep her calm? And she was just calm and collected and as if I was talking to, to you. And Tony said, can you move? Are you okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was only one way to get her out, and that was over that body. So we moved some ducting, some filing cabinet, papers, and she just came up over. Once we got down to the floors and we had to tunnel our way in. Tony Tamakehu. Because there wasn't much room left, you know, between when, if you imagine the ceiling here collapsing, and the only thing that kept the floors apart with the beams. Yeah, that was as much room as we had. So and all the furniture and the desks and the ceiling, all the services above the ceilings was all compacted into that area. Yeah, so it's quite amazing that the people who did survive survived. Then there was a, another woman and we we got her out and I was thinking, how brave are these women? They're so calm and so clear and just a matter of fact. I don't know how long they'd been in there. There was all this death around them, and, and we got her out. The woman tells them another colleague is stranded in the corner, and they can hear movement behind the ducting. He'd crawled across to where we were, and Harry was just able to move some ducting, and, he, and this young guy jumped out. And the first thing I said to him was, mate, you owe me a spades. <laughs> that was the first thing. And he shot up the ladder. One of the boss girls come back up earlier and she gave a list who we thought was in there. And Bruce Harrington. So once we got down through the beams, through the, each layer of floor, which was five levels of floor. Using the list, he starts calling the numbers, making contact, talking to some of the people who are trapped in the building. What floor they're on and how far they're in, and then we'd translate it to the person who was willing enough to stay with us and tell us where they roughly be. So then we'd track through and blow um, beams out. The engineers are looking at it as well, but they said stop, but we just keep going and put our own thing, yeah. And we sort of pulled out 
got the first girl out that was pretty trapped and she was like, um, had to pull her over, um, you know, around a few bodies and stuff and got them out and once we got her out we just, we're into it, you know what I mean, we just keep going then. Information is also coming from outside the building as Megan Martin is making diagrams and trying to make sense of where the survivors might be found. So we had these lists and the people, as they were getting rescued, we were getting more information from them and um, the people that were outside, the managers and where else was working, they were helping us organise the list and I guess we're kind of the middlemen and organising things. At some stage, a fireman came and he put us on the bonnet of a ute and said, just stay here, keep on doing what you're doing. There was actually two women working over the bonnet of a ute and kind of they were doing a bit of writing and stuff. And in fear, I actually thought they were playing close police. Steve Kennedy is still leading the rescue operation. As it turned out, they weren't police. They were two women who were actually passing by and stopped and they thought, hey, what can we do to help? Hey, we'll get names. So it was just incredibly fantastic for us um, to have that, that information. So what they were doing is they were collecting names of people as they came out of the building, but they are also finding out from other people who come out who actually worked in the building, what floor they worked on. Then what they did was they got people off each floor to draw a plan and where the people normally were. And like, that information they were gathering was actually invaluable to us. It made our jobs so much easier. One of those girls, she was still there at 10 o'clock that night when I left. So been there all day and was carrying on into the night. A lot of the time was spent reflecting. Monique McLennan, who dove under the table in the cafeteria when the earthquake struck. Initially it was the trade-off saying, OK, we can lose this and this. And Initially, if I'm honest, I actually gave up. I was just like, I'm going to die. And I was very, very hysterical and I was screaming and I was yelling for help and everyone got very angry because I was just, I, I would not stop screaming help. Because I could hear, and this is after about two hours, you could hear these rescuers who'd come in to help the guy who was, um, that I could hear. I was later found out that actually what I was hearing was him getting his legs amputated, which was horrendous to hear but we kind of knew it was coming when they said his legs were trapped so but um yeah a lot of time was spent reflecting and I think building up the courage to want to live like and to try and live like yeah that was like one of my main things and as soon as I got to that point it was kind of like okay I can do this I can do this I just gotta just gotta do whatever I can but I guess one of the things was I just, I started the regret process of, I wish I'd done this with my life, I wish I'd done this. I wish I'd told my family that I loved them that one last time. I was able to get the phone again and I was able to ring my grandma and that's like the one thing that I was just very adamant I really wanted to do and I was like, this is gonna absolutely break her heart. I rang her and she's like, oh, I was wondering how you are going, love. And I was just like, um, Grandma, I just rang to tell you I'm stuck under a chair and all I wanted to say is I love you. And she's like, oh, that's nice. And I was like, she has no idea what's going on. <laughs> she, just, she didn't hear me at all. She obviously didn't hear me at all. And um, so I was like, okay, I have to go. I'm sorry. And I was just like, I love you. And like turned off my phone and, and turned off the phone because it was the battery was dying. So that was like the one thing that I needed to was I needed to tell my grandmother I loved her and to tell her to tell 
the rest of my family that I loved them. And my grandma was really funny. She's like, I didn't actually realize until we got off the phone that you were actually, I thought like I kind of got this idea that you were saying goodbye to me. And then I started feeling really bad and she's like, and I didn't know what to do. And I was like, I was saying goodbye to you, grandma. Like, I mean, I know it sounds horrible and I really, I just didn't want to not say goodbye. Amanda Fuller is also making a call. After some hours stuck in the building, she manages to push her left arm down the side of her desk to grab her work phone, which has fallen down. So I was able to ring my dad from inside the building, and he's in Omero, and um, tell him that I was alive. But I said to him, oh, I don't think my hand's very good. I actually felt like I'd lost all of my hand, because that's how far up the concrete was on my hand. And he said to me, he said, oh, can you hear people outside, can you hear um, firemen and things? And I said, yeah. And he said, oh, you'll be all right, just hang in there and just let me know once you're out. We'll just stop, we'll just have like a minute of silence, call out. Tony Tamakehu crawling through the narrow tunnels within the squashed building. And we'd just ascertain, we'd have a rough plan on a bit bit of ply of the building, and then where the voices would come from, we'd mark them. And then we'd try and get them to say what floor they were on to slip through and to get out to them. Then they hear of someone else on the Manchester Street side of the building, Peter Riley. And he was trapped. And that turned out to be uh, Nick. It turned out he was a real big guy. The only way to get to him was under a concrete pillar. But it's a narrow space. I was standing there ready to take my harness off and next thing I know Tony's following the and he's gone under it. And I've known Tony for 30 years, and, I, and I'm thinking, if this goes wrong, what am I going to tell Jeanette, his wife? It's like, and I'm trying to say, I'm smaller, I should be going there. And he, he was just, just gone. And this guy had a huge amount of filing cabinets, desk, and we couldn't get enough tools through. So they only had hand tools. We couldn't use electric cutters, we couldn't use power saws to cut the gear off this guy, and, and Tony and the USAR guy worked on him for maybe an hour, and I'm thinking, oh yeah, brought the medic down, medic couldn't get under to see him, and I thought, this might not, this might not end that well. And Tony says, oh, can't move him, gotta do this, gotta do that. And anyway, they did, they moved him onto that concrete pillar, told, the fire chief, the fire chief got hold of the engineer, and we said we want to cut the concrete pillar to make a scallop so we can fit his chest through. And they said you can only jackhammer to the first reinforcing bar. So we did that. Tried again, still not enough room. So Tony said, "Hold on, hold on, hold on." They swung him around and put his legs first to us. And Rob had one, and I had another, and I was, had my foot against the concrete pillar, pulling. Then we hear this, just this massive screaming. And he started to come. And we got him. And it wasn't until later that night Tony told me, oh, I had the nail on his chest. 
to spread his ribs to um, to allow him. Otherwise, he wouldn't have got through. Summer Oliver is also in a lot of pain. She's still curled up in a fetal position, pinned by a beam across her back. When they were sledgehammering through the concrete to make a hole to get to me, every time they whacked that hammer on the concrete, it felt like the building was going to come down a bit more and, and drop. But yeah, as soon as they made a hole, there was this ray of light, which was like, this wee bit of hope that someone was going to get us out. But in Summer's case, it's not going to be easy. A fireman positions jaws of life devices on either side of her. He later tells Summer he's used to working with heavy equipment, but this rescue will push the machinery to its limit. The equipment he used that day was the most he's ever had to use, and he's only ever used a notch below that. He used, I think it was 80 tonnes worth. A large airbag is further under the beam, with other firemen waiting to blow it up. He was sort of counting down and then telling them when to blow it up, or I'm not quite sure how it works, but he yeah, made sure they slowly did it. He knew that if these jacks didn't lift the beam back, he had no idea how he was going to get me out, apart from getting a crane, which would have taken far too long. I wouldn't have lasted. You couldn't even cut me out because I was in fetal position with beam on my lower back. You can't cut my legs off, or what's the point of cutting my arms off, or can you cut me in half? You just couldn't. And he said to me, um, I'm going to pull you, I'm going to pull you so hard. Um, no matter what happens and you're going to get out and if anything happens don't worry because I'm here with you He asks the other firemen to leave just in case there are more collapses or something happens so yeah they managed to pull me out um, when they lifted this beam a quarter of an inch and it may have stayed up only about a second this beam and then dropped. After four hours, Summer has been freed, but it's not over. Her injury is worse than she thought. All I remember is the men yelling to get a stretcher now and that I'd need an, need an ambulance straight away. And here was I thinking that I'd be fine to walk out and I would tell the men where all the girls were, help them out, be encouraging them. Um, and I just didn't know how bad I was. Another team gets in to rescue the girls who are trapped nearby, but Summer needs help. The firemen pull her along on one of their jackets, across rubble and up through the hole. She's in excruciating pain. She hears someone shouting out that she'll be all right. Medical staff help her into an ambulance, along with another colleague. He was quite a quiet person at work, and even he was yelling to me, hang in there, Summer, you can do it because the ambulance staff were saying, we're losing her, we're losing her, and they were trying to keep my eyes open, and with all the strength I had left, I was trying to hang in there, and it was the hardest thing we ever had to do. 
Back in the building, help is also coming for Amanda Fuller. She's been trapped in a small space, somewhere on the first floor, with her hand pinned by debris. Steve, my fireman, came in and he said, Amanda, start talking to me so I can hear your voice and follow your voice. And um, I could see his light shining through a small gap between my desk and the concrete. Like I was in like a kind of cave-like scenario. I had about 10 centimetres above my head and there's all this concrete over me. And I said to him, I said, oh, I can see your light. And he said, oh, I think you're above me. And I said, no, no, you're right in front of me. And he said, no, you're above me. The way the building's collapsed and the concrete's pressed around her make it hard for the fireman to see her. And then I was like, here's my leg, and I was able to stick my leg out because the concrete kind of, the wall, kind of ended here. And as I say, had my hand not been trapped, I would have been able to crawl around. And so he saw my leg, and um, he started crawling around where I was, and he touched my fingers, because the fingers must have been showing from the outside. And he said, can you feel that? And I said, no. He came round and he said, oh, hello. And I said, oh, hi, it's so good to see you. I said, I've got to touch you because <laughs> I've just got to make sure you're real. So I did that. And then he goes, right, we're going to have to kick this bookshelf in. And I said, oh, no, don't do that. And he said, why? And I said, well, if you do that, I'm scared the concrete's going to fall and pin me more. They bring in a saw and cut a triangular shape out of the bookshelf. The bookshelf tilted. And as my hand came free, I saw my fingers fall off. It was like watching a horror movie. It's like, you know, didn't look like my hand. And I, at that point, lost it. And he said to me, he goes, Amanda, just look at me. Focus on me. We're going to get you out. So they wrap Amanda's hand in a T-shirt. They take her fingers too, hoping she can get them reattached. And they try to get out. And then I had to crawl for quite a wee way on my elbows and then they sort of had an opening and there were firemen at the opening and they pulled me. There was a ladder thing there but I couldn't climb it because of my hands so they got under my shoulders and they lifted me up. And so then I was in a crane and I was lowered to the ground and that's when I saw the building and that's when I lost it. She's taken to a makeshift medical facility at the Band Rotunda. They had to do like a, um, a hand block, so they had to put injections into each one of my fingers. That's the most painful thing I've ever gone through. Inside the building, as time wears on, the conditions are getting colder and more difficult for builders Bruce, Tony and Peter. We had tarpaulin set up over top and, you know, it was pretty all soaking wet, all T-shirts on and cold and that. And they're buoyed up by hearing voices from between the floors. A few shakes when we were underneath, that was pretty, um, you know, what are we doing? What am I doing? <laughs> what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> sort of thinking that, you know. But, and then you'd hear them talk, you know, we'd drill a hole through beams and push a pipe through and they'd um, talk, you know, you could hear them where they were, so it was quite good. We were just so focused on what needed to be done, how to do it, and we were just working at a pretty torrid pace. But with, our, with us, Harry, Tony, myself, and Tim, there was just a, a calmness, there was a, a clarity. We knew what needed to be done. And we had a clear picture of the process and what was needed. I just made a conscious effort to lower the adrenaline and just keep it calmness, a clarity. 
Rescuers are gradually making their way to the cafeteria, where it's been a long wait for Monique McLennan and four others. I said, we're coming, we're coming, and we're like, why aren't you coming? Like, it turns out then, like, about a few hours later, someone else, someone did actually end up coming, obviously. They came up to us, but they came through the second floor, and we could see the torchlight, and they're like, can you see the light? Can you see the light? We can see glimpses of the light, and they're like, you're on the second floor, we're on the first floor. And we couldn't understand how they couldn't find us. And they ended up finally coming through the correct place. And I can actually say the best moment of my life was when I saw that light. And as soon as I saw it, I became hysterical because I was just like, get me out, get me out, get me out. Do whatever you can to get me out. And because I knew he'd come from the girl's side first and because I knew where I was positioned, it was going to be hard for them to get to me. Eventually, Monique's rescuer, Michael, reaches her. As soon as he came through, he got them out quite quickly, and I was like, don't leave me, don't leave me. And they're like, we'll wait for you out there. And then Michael's like, I won't leave you. And I was like, thank God. And he then literally just destroyed objects to get to me. And then he grabbed my right foot and just pulled and pulled and pulled and pulled until he got me unjarred from where I was. And I was just like, oh, my God, thank you. And then I just pretty much crawled as fast as I could possibly move out of the bit that I was in. And then I saw the square, which is where we had to crawl through. And as soon as I saw that, I went, what the hell has happened? There were queues and queues for all different scans and things. So I had to wait for so long. Arriving at Christchurch Hospital, Summer has no energy. She has scan after scan in a building inundated with other injured people. That was the worst part because I wasn't getting enough pain relief and I couldn't keep myself awake and it didn't feel like they were doing anything to keep me awake. Summer is told she has kidney failure and within hours of arriving she's flown on to ICU at Wellington Hospital. I didn't know that I was on amputation watch. They told my mum they were just watching my legs and I blew up. I put on 25 kg of fluid, which was as a result of the crush injury. She's moved on to a ward and her dialysis is reduced. And after that, my kidneys kicked in and they did a great job. Um, they were still watching my pelvis and it wasn't until I got back to Christchurch and the second week I was there, they decided to do surgery and put a plate on it because it wasn't healing how it should. Summer is then back to Christchurch Public for three weeks and then on to Burwood Hospital for physio. At first she can't stand for her feet to be touched, it's just too painful. But gradually physios help her to put pressure on her feet. Then there's the muscle wastage and nerve damage. My sciatic nerves were damaged. Um, and I can't feel my right foot and I have a chance of feeling it in the next couple of years Um, but um, I'm just going to stay positive and I'm walking at the moment with crutches and for long distance I'm in a wheelchair so um, over the last six months I've come a really long way After her rescue from the PGC building, Amanda Fuller is taken by an army truck to get medical care at the 24-hour surgery. 
a surgeon from Southern Cross came across and she had a look at my hand and that's when they noticed there was a lot of glass in my hand and she said, oh, your hand's too severe, we're not going to be able to reattach your fingers. Um, at that stage, I was quite pumped up with morphine, so it was, I was basically a bit of a daze for me, really. Um, I felt really gutted that my fingers were gone, that I'm never going to have them again, but I was just so relieved to be out of the building and very, very grateful to still be alive. And she heads home to Omaru, struggling with the knowledge that some of her colleagues haven't been as fortunate. Um, I came back for a couple of funerals. Um, one of the most hardest experiences I've ever gone through. Um, just seeing the rest of my workmates for the first time, that was really hard. Um, so yeah, I came back for those and then I just had to get out of Christchurch again. Um, and back to Omaru, just where I felt safer and just being able to just actually go to sleep without you know, waking up and being, being afraid. Um, I think the first couple of nights that I was in Omaru, I woke up and I don't know where I was and I thought I was trapped again. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's been a healing experience, both mentally and physically. Monique McLennan's also trying to cope with the loss of her colleagues. The, literally the worst part of the whole experience for me though, like this was definitely the worst part, was when I walked around to my side of the building, which is when I had been sitting. And my whole team sits sat on the side of the building and all I remember is looking over the whole team before I went out to lunch. And I had an, a St John's ambulance lady like walking with me and I just collapsed and started hysterically hysterically crying and like screaming because I was just like oh my god they're all dead and I think that was quite literally the worst feeling like I mean like me going to lunch 10 minutes early literally saved my life um the people who were sitting at their desks in my unit died who were still there so I was I owe my life to last night's leftovers <laughs> Sorry. And for others too, the events of the day will linger. Tony Tamakehu. When you're crawling around in a little space, perhaps just big enough for your dog, and the building above you is shaking, it certainly makes you um, appreciate the, the good things yes. in life. It yeah, 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 it does. Megan Martin finally gets home after helping collate names. Throughout that time, she struggled to make contact with her own children and her husband, Paul, who's a policeman. I got a text eventually when all the texts started to come through from a friend in Wellington. He said that Paul was alive, my husband, because he'd seen him on TV rescuing the lady out of the cathedral. It's a pretty long day too for Bruce Harrington, but one of those people he helps to rescue, a young woman a few people have mentioned, who's soon to be married, turns out to be a family connection. Yeah, that was sort of pretty good. That was sort of on the breaking news and in the cage, lifted down, and she's actually my parents' neighbour, farm neighbour. So I was at a party one night and she sort of run and jumped up and her and a partner were there. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was quite good. Tony and I headed down to the ground floor. Peter Riley. We looked back up, got something to eat, got a drink, headed back to the truck and we just 
he drove me back to my place and it was just surreal. We I don't think we even spoke. It was just it's hard to we couldn't really comprehend what had just happened. Was it real? Was it unreal? And he dropped me off, it must be at three thirty, called the four in the morning and it was, you know, catch you in the morning, see what happens tomorrow. And I got got inside and of course the place was just trash. The um on my fridge there was all my liquor, just square fridge was just full of full of alcohol and it was all over the kitchen floor. So as soon as I opened the doors it's just stench of alcohol. And I was like, oh. then I walked back outside and went to turn the hose on to um wash wash my gear. No water. <laughs> and my hair was just full of dust and grime. And I <laughs> then I went to the shower. Of course I just tested the water, no water. And just yeah, climbed into bed. I grew up that night on the Pine Gorgina site. Was, I'd, I'd learnt what humility was. I'd learnt what humanity was. And I understood what self-leadership was. There was a group of 20-odd construction guys that went into that job, just strangers, and just came out as a band of brothers. It was pretty profound. In all, 18 people die in the PGC building. Peter Riley and Tony Tamakehu return to the city a day later to help on the CTV building, and you'll hear more of their story in the coming episodes. Ten years later, Tony Tamakehu still lives in Christchurch and still does the same job. He tries to say yes to travel or other opportunities if he can. Life short, he says. There have been some changes, all normal life stuff, Tony reckons. He's separated from his wife and lives in an apartment in the city, quite near the site of the PGC building. I pass it every morning. Yeah, now and again I'll swing by there and sit on the wee seat I've got there. Have a wee think. Think about all the people who aren't with us anymore. Yeah, how it affects their families. and Yeah, yeah I don't give much thought to it. How we went about our, our business on the day, really. We just did what we did. Tony gives a lot of credit to Tim Smith's quick thinking, organisational ability and the cranes he provided. Lives were saved because of that. But Tony doesn't think he and his team could have done anything different on the day of the quake, given the tools and resources they had on hand. And as the 10th anniversary gets nearer, he thinks it's likely some of his memories will come back more strongly. Uh, probably on the day they will. A group of us usually get together who are involved with the work we did in town and, you know, have a chat. We don't dwell on it too much, really. We're just more concerned about what's happened to each other afterwards, you know, how we, everyone's got on and what they lost. It's a good reason to get together for a beer. Monique McLennan remembers the feeling of the desk pressing down on her that day and the fear. 
Sometimes the smell of dust can take her back. She was diagnosed with acute post-traumatic stress and later lost her job. But in the 10 years since the February earthquake, she says her life has changed substantially and for the better. I look at my life kind of now in two very different eras. Um, there's the pre-earthquake Monique and then there's the post-earthquake Monique. And they are just so different people. You know, once I got through all of my post-traumatic stress, I kind of decided, you know what, I've only got one life to live, so why am I trying to work within these boundaries that other people are putting in front in front of me and from there I just kind of became what I know as myself today which is just someone who goes out there takes every opportunity that's presented because then I just stopped caring what other people think that's 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 it flat (laughs) Monique says this is her second chance at life and she's not going to waste it and even when I'm going out and I'm doing something that scares me which you know fighting the fear I will think back at that time and go you know what, this isn't the worst thing that's happened to me. So I always know that whatever is coming up in front of me, whatever issues I'm facing, I can get through it. Or if I have an opportunity that scares me, I'm so fortunate to have that opportunity. One of those opportunities was almost unbelievable. Five years after the earthquake, I went over to Las Vegas and I won the world's biggest pin-up pageant. And that's things that pre-earthquake Monique would never have even imagined doing. Monique, Miss Viva Las Vegas, lives in Hamilton now with her husband and their new baby. She is clear about why she agreed to be interviewed back in 2011 and again now, 10 years later. This is what happened. This is part of my identity. This is part of New Zealand's history. And people are still living it. And irrespective of how long ago it was, it's still so important to so many people, just for people to have a general understanding of what happened and how people were still affected by it. Like Monique, Summer Oliver hasn't let her ordeal rule her life. For quite a long time there, the re- recovery from my injuries took such a long time that you almost let it define who you are so almost introduced myself as hi I'm Summer I was seriously injured in the earthquake but it got to a point where I realised that that's not who I am Um, it's just a part of my life experience and it doesn't need to define who I am, I'm more than that Summer no longer needs a wheelchair but there's been no miracle recovery for her. The road back has been hard. I had to do a lot of therapy due to the pain. I had to learn how to manage my life in a different way because if I still wanted to do everything that I did pre-earthquake, I was in incredible pain. So that was the first thing that I had to learn was just saying no to things, not going to everything that was happening. Um resting a lot and yeah just doing a whole lot of rehab to to get myself back to as good a state as the best state I could be in um, with the injuries that I had so um, even now I'm incredibly organized because if I'm not the pain comes on so if I can manage things well I can keep the pain away 
When you go through a life-changing event, you don't so much remember it as live with it. It's there in Summer's foot and her pain. But she does make time to remember her rescuers. The rescuers are the first people I think of any, every anniversary. I wouldn't be here if they weren't brave. One of the men that helped me out, he was a builder and he was claustrophobic and he still got into the building and lay there holding my hands and encouraging me to keep going. Well, um, one of the firemen was trying to do work to lift the beam off me um, and he had a daughter my age and, and so did some of the others as well. So they said to me, lady, you know, we would have hoped that if that was our daughter that, that someone would have helped them as well. But the decades since the quake has seen good things for Summer too. She's married, her surname is now Shoulders, and has had two children. Having to be so organised in her pain management has made her organised in her parenting too. She feels a kinship with others who've been through trauma, fellow quake survivors, the Fakari White Island victims and the families of those who died in the Christchurch mosque attacks. I think because you can relate to them, you're not, they're obviously very different experiences but they're all very traumatic and um, when these things have happened I just, my heart sinks for the people because I've been through a hell experience and I don't want anyone else to go through that. Being trapped in the PGC building was a nightmare, Summer says, but not a defining one. And besides... It's been a long time and look how far I've come. In our next episode, Cathedral Square and the CBD... Then I thought, this is pretty bad. I could die in here. As I was getting into the middle of the square, the cathedral fell down in front of me. And it sort of started hitting me. I thought, this is really bad. And I just thought, what the hell has happened to my city? Those stories next time on Fragments, first-hand accounts of the February 2011 earthquake. Fragments is written and presented by me, Katie Gossett, and co-produced by myself and Justin Gregory. It's engineered by Alex Harmer and Rangi Powick, and Tim Watkin is the executive producer of podcasts and series. Thanks to Julie Hutton and Sandra Close for their work in recording interviews, and to Nate McKinnon for additional recording and video work. We'd also like to thank Monique McLennan, David Lang, Steve Kennedy, Megan Martin, Amanda Fuller, Summer Oliver, Peter Riley, Tim Smith, Bruce Harrington and Tony Tamakehu for sharing their personal stories to create this record of the fatal Christchurch earthquake on February the 22nd, 2011. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.